This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is not your century. This is not your century, where we celebrate the news and the news media of centuries gone by. I'm King Kaufman. Welcome to day two of our holiday marathon, the best of not your century. Yesterday's theme was true crime. Today's theme is you get no theme and you'll like it. It's just some episodes I really like from the first four months of doing this podcast. I didn't mean to do this, but these episodes pick up with the timeline from yesterday. We went chronologically yesterday from 1913 to 1965. Today, we're going to start in 1967, and we're going to go through the 70s, 80s, 90s. We'll get to Evil Knievel, we'll get to Randy Schultz, and we'll get to Herb Kane. But we're going to start with one of my favorite things to talk about on this show, the Summer of Love. Before we do that, I want to remind you again, August 22nd, I'm doing a live episode of Not Your Century at the Beta Brand Podcast Theater on Valencia Street. You need a ticket to get in. They're free, though. Go to eventbrite.com and search for Not Your Century or just click the link in my Twitter bio at King underscore Kaufman. All right, let's get to the best of Not Your Century. Day two of our marathon. Here we go. May 16th, 1967. The San Francisco Chronicle has gone undercover. Reporter George Gilbert was sent to the Haight-Ashbury district where he lived for a month as a hippie. The result is a series of reports that tell what the high life is like, what the coming summer invasion of flower children can expect, not to mention the tourists who will be in town to gawk at them. Gilbert's first report is headlined, Love Code of the Flower Children, Reporter's Visit to a Pot Party. There's an unwritten code most of the hippies in the Haight-Ashbury try to live by, he begins. A prime tenet, for instance, is to get high and stay high. Gilbert explains that by getting high, you get closer to God, and thus closer to understanding yourself. Hence, he writes, the strong dependence on the mind expanders. Marijuana. LSD. Banana. Now we need to stop here for a second. Banana? I feel like I've been around the block a little bit. If drug slang was well enough known to have gotten into a major metropolitan daily paper in 1967, I've probably heard it. Horse, Lucy, Mary Jane. But banana? It turns out Gilbert's talking about actual bananas. In March of that year, someone had written a letter to the Berkeley Barb claiming that he'd discovered you could get high from smoking banana peels. It was a hoax, a satire meant to comment on the government's habit of making things illegal as soon as it found out you could get high from them. LSD had only been outlawed the year before. So the idea was, what would happen if it turned out you could get high from bananas? Would the feds make them illegal? The United States could go nose to nose with the Soviet Union. But would it stand up to the United Fruit Company? 
that's not a joke. Hit pause and look up where the term Banana Republic came from. I'll wait. Okay, welcome back. So, getting high from bananas was a hoax, but it went over. Big. There were reports of runs on the banana bins at grocery stores, though when the Chronicle talked to grocers in the hate, they said there wasn't much of a bump in banana sales. Hippies chanted, Banana! at sit-ins. Time and Newsweek and all the wire services wrote about it in all seriousness. By May, hippies in the hate would have known from experience that smoking banana peels wasn't a way to get high. And Gilbert's mention here may have been a winking one. But I'm not convinced he was in on the joke. Anyway, to be clear, you can't get high from smoking banana peels, kids. Back to George Gilbert's report on living with the hippies for a month in the hate. He writes that the flower children, aside from getting high and staying high, emphasize sharing over what they consider the money values of the straight world. And thus, the hippies say with all the fervor of uncompromising Christians that love is all important. Hate is a hang-up that robs you of energy and others, like the Viet Cong, of life. As the headline says, Gilbert went to a pot party. It was in the apartment of a Montgomery Street lawyer overlooking Buena Vista Park. A beautiful black-haired woman, hey, he didn't write girl, welcomed him into the apartment. An Indian raga was playing on the hi-fi. People were drinking wine and smoking marijuana from a Turkish water pipe. Gilbert writes that the crowd was typical of the professional-type hippie. There was an intern from San Francisco General Hospital, a research physicist, a middle school teacher, a couple of fashion models, including the woman who'd answered the door. As White Rabbit played, off the new Jefferson Airplane album, the conversation centered on the best drug songs before turning to all the people who were turning on these days. The host says he knows an engineer who works for one of the squarest companies in the world, but he turns on and he swears that eight of the 25 guys in his department do the same. The intern says even the doctors turn on. Gilbert writes that there seems to be a certain compulsion among those who smoke marijuana or take LSD to justify themselves. After dinner, a curry that Gilbert thinks packs some extra wallop, the guests all decide to go to a Jefferson Airplane concert. They pile into cars. Gilbert is apprehensive about getting into the host's car because the guy's high. But he climbs in, and then the lawyer smokes another joint as they drive. I'm happy to say, Gilbert writes, we made it. This is just the first day of this special report. It teases the next day's big headline. The Flower Children. A day in the life of a hippie. I've got another Summer of Love story coming up next week. It's about some very famous people getting busted at a pot party on Belvedere Street. But now let's go to my favorite episode of Not Your Century. I worked really hard on it because it meant a lot to me, and I know it sounds like I'm being flip and kidding, but I'm being serious. It's basically my autobiography. In 1975, there was pretty much no one more important to me and to most of my friends than Evil Knievel. May 27, 1975. The most important man in the world says he's finished. I've got to tell you that you 
are the last people in the world who will ever see me jump because I will never, ever, ever jump again. I am through. Evil Knievel had just tried to jump his motorcycle over 13 London buses on the field at Wembley Stadium in London in front of 77,000 people. He'd crashed horribly. Just before being loaded into an ambulance on a stretcher, he'd asked to be helped up. The 36-year-old hobbled with assistance up the ramp and, in obvious pain, addressed the crowd, telling them he was retiring. When he finished, his friend, Frank Gifford, broadcasting the event for ABC's Wide World of Sports, told him, you've proven enough. Let's get the stretcher. Evil pleaded to be allowed to walk. Let me get off the ramp. Please help me walk off the ramp. Frank, take me off. I walked in, he said. I want to walk out. He had a broken left pelvis, a cracked right pelvis, broken vertebrae in his lower back, and a fractured hand. Evil Knievel may not really have been the most important man in the world, unless you were an 11-year-old boy with a bicycle, like I was, and like all of my friends were. I think this was probably true nationwide. Kurt Cobain once said that the only hero he ever had was Evil Knievel, but then again the story of the Wembley crash only made page two of the San Francisco Chronicle. But in my corner of Los Angeles, it was definitely true. Some boys wanted to run like O.J. Simpson, dunk like Dr. J., some wanted to be cool like the Fonz. But everybody wanted to be Evil Knievel. No piece of plywood was safe. It'd be snatched for use as a takeoff ramp, or if we got really lucky and found two, a landing ramp. Evil Knievel jumped over cars or school buses lined up side to side on his motorcycle. We jumped over bricks laid end to end. If you had bricks that weren't cemented in place in the 90066 area code in the early and mid-70s, they'd be missing by lunchtime Saturday. The record was 20, then 21, then 22. There were crashes and bike damage, but none of us ever broke a bone jumping, unlike Evil Knievel, who everybody knew had broken every bone in his body. He said it was really more like 35. He was born Robert Knievel in Butte, Montana in 1938. He was a high school dropout, and after a reckless driving scrape, he found himself in the city jail with a guy named, you're not going to believe this, William Knoffel. William was a troublemaker well-known around town as Awful Knoffel. So the guards started calling this other kid Evil Knievel. He used the name when he got into the stunt riding business, but he changed the spelling to E-V-E-L because he didn't want to come off like a hell's angel. His early life reads like the secret life of Walter Mitty. He was a copper miner, a heavy machinery operator. He got fired for doing a wheelie in an earth mover. He was a rodeo rider, a ski jumper, a semi-pro hockey player, a petty thief, a hunting guide, a motocross rider, an insurance salesman, a motorcycle dealer, and finally, a motorcycle stunt rider and show promoter. We didn't know any of this. We just knew that his jumps were on ABC's Wide World of Sports every few months. He'd made his debut there in 1968 when he jumped the fountain in front of Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. But it hadn't been easy. He tried to get the network president on the phone by calling and pretending to be three different lawyers wanting to negotiate a deal. When that didn't work, he started calling pretending to be CBS News and the New York Times. Hey, we hear this Knievel guy is going to jump the fountain at Caesar's Palace. What can you tell us? Knievel was as good a showman and promoter as he was a motorcycle rider. He used to say he was like P.T. Barnum and Colonel Tom Parker rolled into one. 
ABC told Knievel to film the jump himself, and if it was interesting enough, they'd buy it. The film was interesting because he crashed. ABC bought it, and the ratings were through the roof. Evil Knievel became the Super Bowl of Wide World of Sports. Most of the highest-rated episodes of that long-running series were Evil Knievel jumps. And the pattern continued. Knievel made hundreds of jumps, but his crashes got all the attention. He talked for years about jumping the Grand Canyon. He could never get a permit, so he set his sights on some private land at the Snake River Canyon in Idaho. He jumped the river in a specially designed rocket motorcycle, and he actually made it across. But the rocket's parachute had deployed too early, and the wind carried him back over the canyon. He landed on the near side riverbank. That was his most recent jump when he went to Wembley Stadium. He and Gifford had gotten roaring drunk in London the night before, and now Knievel had come to the stadium, looked at the setup, and he knew he couldn't make it. He'd start by going down a ramp that was laid on top of the grandstand seats, and he could see. The angle wasn't steep enough, and the distance wasn't long enough for him to get enough speed to make it over the buses. Gifford told him, cancel the jump, or take a bus or two away. Knievel said no, he couldn't do that. He'd said he was going to jump 13 buses, and throughout his life he always said the most important thing in the world was keeping your word. On ABC, before the jump, Gifford asked Knievel about jumping after such a long layoff. It had been more than a year since he jumped on an actual motorcycle. Knievel was subdued. He'd just woken up from a nap. He said, yeah, well, I may not be as good as I once was, but you're going to find out today I'm as good once as I always was. If that sounds like a country song, it's because Toby Keith made it one 30 years later. Well, he wasn't as good this once as he always was, except in that moment where he struggled off the gurney. He always said you weren't a failure if you fell just if you didn't try to get up. He spent a few weeks in the hospital and then flew home. By that time, he'd decided he wasn't retiring after all. At JFK Airport in New York, he lay on a stretcher as he told reporters he planned to go back to Wembley and try again. Try again, they said. But you just said you were retiring. I don't care what I said. The schedule calls for me to jump again in September. He never did jump at Wembley again, and of course it was ridiculous to say he'd jump again in September. His next jump was at Kings Island Amusement Park in Ohio. But it wasn't until October. And he's not hesitating. He'll go. We used to joke about awful canoffle because I don't know where that came from, but it sounded like evil Knievel. Like you'd jump your bike over something and somebody would go like, who do you think you are, evil Knievel? And you'd go, no, man, I'm awful canoffle. I had no idea there really was an awful canoffle, that he was evil Knievel's, that he was Rob Knievel's cellmate and that the cops called him awful canoffle because he was such a troublemaker. So that's how evil Knievel got his name. Okay, next up, another story that I worked really hard on. It's the longest episode ever of Not Your Century so far. I hope to do more like this. It's a full documentary, and it's about somebody who is very important in the history of the San Francisco Chronicle, the history of San Francisco, and really the history of the United States. It's Randy Schiltz. He was an early chronicler and really the major chronicler of the AIDS crisis. 
And I hope you like this episode. Here it is, Randy Schiltz. Every time I see a new spot, I think I'm a step closer to death, said Jerry, a former waiter. I don't even look in the mirror anymore. May 13th, 1982. Disease is hitting primarily gay men with increasing frequency across the country. The strange, deadly diseases that strike gay men reads the, the headline. Of GRID for gay-related immunodeficiency diseases. It wasn't called AIDS yet, but this was the dawn of AIDS coverage in mainstream media. States since the first outbreak of Legionnaire's disease in 1976. Randy Schiltz, San Francisco Chronicle. This wasn't the first mention of this new gay plague in the Chronicle. That had come the previous year in a short item written by science writer David Perlman. But it was the first headline story about it. And it was the first coverage by Randy Schiltz, who had been hired by the Chronicle in 1981 in part to cover the gay community. It was a new beat, and Schiltz was a new kind of reporter. Openly gay at a major metropolitan daily. He hadn't gotten a warm welcome. Susan Sward was a fellow reporter on the Metro desk. Generally speaking, reporters tend to uh, look on people that are advocates as questionable. And Randy never hit his advocacy. And in that newsroom, you were looking at a place that where no one was openly gay. Randy showed up with this big mop of curly hair with brightly floral ties. Schultz was an advocate, not for any political position, but for acceptance of gay people. He had first pursued that through politics when he was a college student in Oregon. If you read it, what he wrote at the time, he became frustrated by the ability of politics to kind of change things. Andrew Stoner is the author of a new biography of Schiltz, The Journalist of Castro Street. He's often talking about that in his diary and other places about if people just understood gay people a little bit more, that they'd be more accepting, that if that the problem was that they had misinformation or no information. He faced an uphill climb. The mainstream media, even the newspaper that had hired Schiltz, wasn't interested in going too deep with coverage of homosexuality in America. That first story about the strange diseases striking gay men? The death toll in the Bay Area was 19. Dozens more were ill. So far, they have seen only the tip of the iceberg. Doctors were terrified. ...with which diseases are being reported. The story was on page six. Not page one. Page six. Alan Mutter would become Schultz's editor in 1984, but in 82, he was working at the Chicago Sun-Times. That's when he first heard about GRID, as AIDS was still called. He says a reporter told him about it, and he had her write a big piece. And we turned it into the news desk, and the people who laid out the newspaper chopped it down about six paragraphs and buried it back in the as far back in the paper as you could bury it back then. That was the customary approach in lots of newspapers around the country. In fact, it probably was a predominant approach. Randy Schiltz changed that approach. Fellow reporter Susan Sward. I saw that Randy took a story that began on page six and forced it by his own strength of will onto the front pages of the Chronicle consistently. This paper was not on the cutting edge in terms of seeing this initially as a as an institution, as a paper, as something that we needed to chase. It really and truly was Randy pushing. Starting on May 13, 1982, and for the next dozen years, Randy Schultz would become the leading reporter on the AIDS pandemic. He would fight for more coverage, more openness, more of an urgent response to this devastating disease. He would write the first major book about AIDS, and the band played on. He would become both revered and hated in the gay community. And in 1994, 
like more than a quarter of a million people before him, he would die of AIDS. Randy Schultz was born in Davenport, Iowa in 1951 and raised in Aurora, Illinois, in greater Chicago. He went west ostensibly for college, but in his diary he wrote about going because he'd heard about communes, especially bisexual communes. He was smart, but at first not a serious student at Portland Community College and the University of Oregon. He found his calling when he left political organizing and discovered journalism. He was a dogged, talented reporter, and he was also out and open about his sexuality, and he wrote and talked about the issues in gay life, including sexual issues, like the bathhouse culture. He wanted to be in mainstream journalism, but there were no job offers for an out reporter, so he came to San Francisco in the mid-1970s to work for The Advocate, a gay news magazine, and then for the PBS TV station KQED, where he reported for the show News Hour. The gay drive for acceptance has produced no single issue as volatile and emotion-packed as that of how homosexuality should be dealt with in public schools. In 1981, the Chronicle hired him to cover the community that he was very much a part of. He'd lived the hedonistic lifestyle, struggled with alcoholism, worked in a bathhouse. He was writing The Mayor of Castro Street, a biography of Harvey Milk that would be published in 1982. He wasn't the first to write about this new disease. That was David Perlman, the science writer, who wrote for the Chronicle for more than 70 years. Perlman is retired now, but going strong at 100 years old. In January, he told the Chronicle podcast The Big Event about the beginning of that coverage. In mid-1981, he saw a report about five gay men in Los Angeles who'd all died of a little-known type of pneumonia called pneumocystis. The San Francisco Health Department told him they'd had a similar cluster of cases. And uh, I wrote a brief article on it. But then a young reporter on the Chronicle and I began covering what began the AIDS epidemic. And that young reporter was Randy Schultz, a wonderful, excellent reporter, terrific guy. And he and I covered aspects of the AIDS epidemic, and I was covering the medical and scientific aspects of it. Randy was looking at the policy implications, and the two of us worked together for many, many, many years. As the AIDS crisis widened, bathhouses emerged as a battleground. They were sexual playgrounds for gay men, and the unprotected sex that went on there was a breeding ground for the virus that causes AIDS. Those who were trying to fight the disease argued for the bathhouses to be shut down, but there was fierce resistance. It wasn't yet established science that AIDS was transmitted sexually. It had only been nine years since the American Psychiatric Association had stopped considering homosexuality a disease. Now, the same medical community that had attacked gay people for centuries was telling them to stop having sex. Alan Mutter, Schultz's editor at The Chronicle. They felt that the movement to close the bathhouses because of this so-called AIDS threat was really an effort to close down bathhouses to, to stifle uh, the gay community and to and to turn turn back the tide of of freedom and liberation and full enfranchisement. Biographer Andrew Stoner. You're talking about a generation of people who whose sexual expression 
would cause them to be arrested or or imprisoned or even killed or or fired or you know basically destroyed when you have people finally being able to express themselves sexually i think you you can begin to understand why there's a reluctance to for anybody to put the brakes on that Schultz had covered the spread of hepatitis and other sexually transmitted diseases for the advocate and KQED in the 70s. He argued for the bathhouses to shut down. He was threatened. His life was threatened. Chronicle editor Alan Mutter. People spit on him. Uh, he was he was in some physical danger and certainly at the point of being ostracized by many, many people who he had counted as friends. In the end, strict new rules imposed by the city spelled doom for the bathhouses. Mutter says Schultz's coverage, which he calls appropriately aggressive, helped provide cover for Mayor Dianne Feinstein and other city officials. But there were those who never forgave Schultz. Still, if some in the gay community were angry at him, he was angry at almost everyone. People died when Reagan administration officials ignored pleas from government scientists. And in the not- prologue to And the Band Played On, he gave a litany of institutions that failed to respond as the death toll mounted. People died while scientists did not. 5,600 in 1984, 12,000 in 1985, 24,000 in 1986. People died while health authorities. In the heart of the pandemic, President Ronald Reagan famously refused to even say the word AIDS for years at a time as his administration cut funding for research and medical care. And people care. died while gay community. The media only began to treat AIDS as something other than a disease that happened to those other people when movie star Rock Hudson died of it in 1985. The gay community, Schultz wrote, treated AIDS as a public relations Stories problem. that involve gay sexuality. Dana Van Gorder is a longtime AIDS policy advocate. In the mid-80s, he was an aide to Harry Britt, who had replaced Harvey Milk on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. We didn't use Randy because, you know, Randy was, Randy was pissed off and he wanted something to happen and he was going to make it happen. But there was definitely a symbiotic relationship between those of us who were in government trying to make something happen uh, and, and Randy saying, uh, you know, I will, I will help you to, uh, to stimulate the response that is, is needed. Schultz subscribed to a classic model of journalism. He saw himself as beholden to the truth, not any particular policy. But through journalism, he did advocate first for acceptance for gay people, and now for a swifter and more forceful response to AIDS. In The Mayor of Castro Street, he wrote, History is not served when reporters prize trepidation and propriety over the robust journalistic duty to tell the whole story. The skills he brought to that journalistic duty, developed at the University of Oregon, The Advocate, KQED, and The Chronicle, they were formidable. His editor, Alan Mutter. Everybody wants to talk about Randy and his courageous and important coverage of, of AIDS. But Randy was a, a fully realized, could do anything reporter. He could write, he could investigate, he could interview. Policy advocate Dana Van Gorder. Randy was extremely smart, kind of scary smart, very intense uh, almost all the time. Uh, certainly had you know a good sense of humor, but he was on a mission during those years and was very serious about what he was doing. What he was knowledgeable with, he was completely correct. That's Dr. Jay Levy. He's a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He was a key early researcher of the AIDS virus. Sometimes he exaggerated to get more of the audience. We know that. What Levy's talking about is patient zero, an important figure in And the Band Played On, 
the starting point for the epidemic, the man who brought the disease to the United States. Though doctors and researchers refused to give Schultz his name, he worked his sources and he found it. Gaetan Dugas. He was a French-Canadian flight attendant. He was strikingly handsome. He was a world traveler because of his job. He was sexually active, boasting of more than 250 partners a year. In the book, Schiltz portrays him as having a cruel reaction to the news that he had AIDS, purposely infecting others, or at best, acting recklessly. Jay Levy. He was actually a patient of ours also. And he was a strange person, so Randy captured that. What he wasn't was patient zero. Schiltz got it wrong. Later research proved that Dugas was not the launching point for the virus in the United States. Schiltz had misinterpreted a study, thinking it was a search for the origin of the virus, when in fact it was an attempt to better understand how the disease was transmitted. Also, far from being a typhoid Mary purposely infecting others, Gaetan Dugas was a huge help to researchers. He had a detailed address book that he shared with them, and because of his charisma and his exotic name, casual sex partners tended to remember him. That helped researchers make an unusually large number of connections between Dugas and others who got sick. For a layperson, that may have created the impression that the flight attendant was a hub for the disease, when in fact he was just someone about whom there was a lot of information. On top of that, Schiltz made a simple misreading. He thought researchers were referring to Dugas as patient zero. They were referring to him as patient O, the letter O. Biographer Andrew Stoner. Yeah, this remains the most uh, controversial aspect of Schultz's work. It's, it, and any review now would reveal that he got it wrong. This patient zero actually was a patient O for outside Los Angeles. Schultz's editor at St. Martin's Press was named Michael Denany. When Anne the Band Played On was mostly ignored by the mainstream media, he played up the idea of the villain, Patient Zero, to the tabloid New York Post. The Post ran with it, running a front-page headline, The Man Who Brought AIDS to America. It worked. Other media picked up on the story. According to Stoner's biography, Denony says Schultz objected to the sensationalist sales job. It ignored his points about government, the media, and the gay community's failure to respond to AIDS. But, Denony says, he relented. It was a decision he'd be vilified for, naming and making a scapegoat out of a man who died three years before the book's publication. Schultz got this wrong. Biographer Andrew Stoner. I think there's a lot of hurt feelings around the publicity of Patient Zero in order to sell the Schultz book that some of the people working with Randy uh, undertook and that as a result, he, Randy Schultz dies in 1994 and doesn't get a chance to revisit this issue. And I'm certain he would. He would want it right, and he would want it to be set. He would want to resolve the issue and maybe even um, apologize for the error, which as a result, you know, you have people who hold Randy in high esteem, and you have other people who really just don't care for him at all. Researcher Jay Levy. When he made it patient zero, it was to put a drama in it, but you knew there was some poetic license but it led to everyone wanting to know who the patient zero was. Everyone wanted to debunk it if they could, and, and it made for a very uh, interesting and sought-after book. And the band played on became a bestseller. It was made into a movie by HBO in 1993, the same year that Schultz's third and last book came out, Conduct Unbecoming, Gays and Lesbians in the U.S. Military. By that time... 
Schiltz was dying of AIDS. He said he received that diagnosis the day he turned in the manuscript for And the Band Played On in 1987. He died on February 17, 1994, at the age of 42. He left behind a complicated legacy. Policy advocate Dana Van Gorder. You know, there were some really towering figures in the early response to the epidemic and and throughout the epidemic, obviously. Um, But as I, you know, talk about Randy, I I do, you know, I, I do remember how you know how brilliant he was how committed he was uh and powerful and effective and he was you know truly a a remarkable guy he may have been controversial uh but the role that he played in the response to the epidemic was towering and i remember him with you know great fondness and respect dr j levy randy took the lead in placing attention on this terrible disease hitting San Francisco and other places in the United States. We didn't know about Africa in the very, very beginning. And the book he wrote put a terrific attention on the whole history. Schiltz ended the acknowledgments for And the Band Played On by writing that he would always have a special reverence for people with AIDS who gave some of their last hours for interviews, sometimes as they lay on their deathbeds. When I'd ask why they take the time for this, most hoped that something they said would save someone else from suffering. If there's an act that better defines heroism, I have not seen it. Andrew E. Stoner's biography of Randy Schiltz is called The Journalist of Castro Street, The Life of Randy Schiltz. The voice of Randy Schiltz was provided by Dave Curtis. Thanks to Aaron Alday, Kevin Fagan, Tony Bravo, and Peter Hartlob for their help on this episode. You can hear the full interview with David Perlman on The Big Event, available wherever you get your podcasts. The episode is dated January 16th, 2019. For more on Gaetan Dugas, see the book Patient Zero and the Making of the AIDS Epidemic by Richard A. McKay, and the documentary film Killing Patient Zero. There's a bonus episode that went along with that one. You heard Andrew E. Stoner in the episode you just heard. He's the author of a new biography of Schultz called The Journalist of Castro Street. I just ran my entire interview with him as a bonus episode, and you can find that in the Not Your Century timeline. It's dated May 13th. Okay, this is the last episode in our little two-day holiday marathon of the best of Not Your Century, and it's about another Chronicle writer, the most famous one of them all, and as far as I'm concerned, deservedly so. He wrote in that three-dot style, and it seems so straightforward, I had to read Herb Kane for years before it dawned on me What a great stylist he was. What a great writer he was. So every day when I walk off the elevator on the third floor of the Chronicle building, I walk into the office and I walk past Herb Cain's typewriter. It's called The Loyal Royal, and it's preserved in a little shrine. He lived until 1997, but he never switched over to computers. I never met him, but I did get into his column once for something funny that I wrote on an internal message board when I worked at the old Examiner. I did used to spend a lot of time down at the corner after work at the M&M 
with a group of friends that included Carol Vernier. She was Herb Cain's longtime assistant. And she used to say, let's have a final round. And then when that round was gone, she'd say, should we have a final final? Well, here's the final final of today's Best of Not Your Century. And something I didn't mention in this episode is the jazz music. Why jazz music? I try to fit the music of Not Your Century episodes to the time period that I'm talking about. But in this episode, it's 1996. So what's up with this mid-century jazz? Well, along with everything else that he was, Herb Cain was a jazz drummer. This was his kind of music. Let's hit it. June 14th, 1996. Herb Cain Day in San Francisco. This wasn't just a proclamation by the Board of Supervisors suitable for framing, a nice photo with the mayor. No, no, this was a party. 75,000 people poured into the streets for it. They included not just the mayor of San Francisco, but five mayors of San Francisco. Cain cracked. The grand jury isn't doing its job. Herb Cain had come to Baghdad by the Bay. That was the nickname he coined for San Francisco and the title of one of his books. Another was Don't Call It Frisco. He'd come to Baghdad by the Bay in 1936 to write a radio column for the Chronicle. Two years later, that column turned into a daily items column. Three-dot journalism, he called it, in the style of his hero, New York gossip columnist Walter Winchell. And that column made him both a newspaper legend and a San Francisco institution. Herb Kane Day was the climax of an amazing and bittersweet spring for him. He'd celebrated his 80th birthday and married his longtime sweetheart, Ann Moeller. He'd won a special Pulitzer Prize for his extraordinary and continuing contribution as a voice and conscience of his city. And he was diagnosed with inoperable lung cancer. What a turnout he got. Aside from the five mayors, there was his old pal Walter Cronkite. There was Don Johnson, then the star of the TV show Nash Bridges, about a San Francisco cop. He said Kane had launched his career. He was in a show at ACT in 1968. Nobody was showing up. They had audiences of five people. Then Kane mentioned it in the column, and it became a smash. That was the goal of thousands, maybe millions of people in the Bay Area for decades. Get your name in Herb Kane's column. Your narrator made it once. Herb Kane Day was packed with people who made it more than once. There was Robin Williams. There was Bill Walsh, Amy Tan, Willie Mays. A drill team of bicycle messengers who Kane loved to write about. And 75,000 more people. Impossible to know how many of them had provided answers over the years when Kane asked his favorite question in the column. Item, item, who's a gotta item? Mayor Willie Brown said it was a Herb Cain column come to life. The Bay Area woke up that morning to a Cain column, not in its usual spot on page three next to the Macy's ad, but on page one. It wasn't his usual items column, but supposedly his notes for a speech, should he be called on to make one. It was also a reminder that he wasn't just an items guy. On Saturdays, he tended to forego the three-dot format and write about the city. This column was more like that. He wrote, On the waterfront today, I'll be seeing the ghosts of Shanghai sailors, hearing the splash of a thousand anchors, remembering the creaking away of the old pilings as a real SF ferry 
a floating Victorian mansion with paddle wheels, comes slowly to rest. I'll remember the smell of tar, hemp, creosote, and coffee in the ferry building, and walking out into the incredible roar of the iron monster streetcars, making the big, endless loop. Everybody walked fast, talked fast, and looked important. Long gone but still glowing, the 57 sign, Wellman's Coffee, Sherwin-Williams paint covering the earth in a feat of electrical magic. He wrote that if this was his greatest day, his luckiest was the day he arrived in San Francisco in 1936. I was about to become a San Franciscan, and therefore the envy of the world. Few titles have more cachet. Where are you from, buddy? San Francisco. Never California. Part of the party was to dedicate the new Embarcadero waterfront as Herb Kane Promenade. Kane ended his column asking if the powers that be could change that to Herb Kane Way. So they did. He later said Promenade was too French. Sounds like something you spread on toast. Although he grew up in what he called Sacramento, Kane always said he was conceived in San Francisco as his parents were visiting the 1915 Pan Pacific Exhibition and he fell in love with it then. At his party, he said, God, I love this town. I loved it before I was born, and I'm going to love it after I'm gone. Less than a year later, he was gone. He died on February 1st, 1997. At the party, Walter Cronkite said, To love San Francisco is easy, but to have San Francisco love you, as San Francisco loves this columnist, borders on the unlikely, the truly incredible. He was going to say more, but he was interrupted by applause. It rolled back across the Embarcadero and up Market Street. One day, if I do go to heaven, I'm going to do what every San Franciscan does that goes to heaven. He looks around and says, it ain't bad, but it ain't San Francisco. And that's the end of my special two-day holiday marathon of the best of Not Your Century. If you're still listening at this point, I'm going to assume that you're a fan of this show. And I'd like to ask you to tell your friends about it. Have them subscribe. Write a review on your favorite podcast app. That's really, really helpful. And if you have a chance on August 22nd, come to my live show. That's at the Beta Brand Podcast Theater, August 22nd. Tickets at eventbrite.com. Search for Not Your Century or just click the link in my Twitter bio. King underscore Kaufman. Thanks for listening. We now return you to your century.